Last week we started, uh, we were in the first sermon in a new series where we're kind of taking a break in, in a series, but we're, we're doing a series kind of leading up to Easter. Um, we're, it's called The Road Less Traveled. As we approach the, the fork in the road that is Easter, quite literally we're coming to a crossroads. Thank you for laughing those kind laughs of. Last week we started this series and it's based on this passage from from Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 where it describes these two roads. We we were looking at the frost the frost uh, poem, you know, the the road less traveled made all the difference and and it seems to be even the idea behind what Jesus is saying here in the sermon on the mount, you know, there's this wide path that leads to destruction. There's this narrow way that leads to life. Um, specifically, last week we looked at the divergent ideas of what we called worldviews, and, um, and and realized that it's really at Easter that these two roads split, and where these different worldviews, this different view of who Jesus is, and then next week what our different anticipations if we go down the narrow way. And we kind of, we kind of compared these two worldviews last week: the natural worldview that says there is no God, there is no soul, there is no truth outside what you can observe, and there is no objective morality or, or value, that, that morality is something that each individual needs to come up with themselves, and they need to be constructs that help advance society as a whole. But other than those two quote-unquote good outcomes, there is no objective, there's no moral lawgiver to tell us what to do. The spiritual worldview obviously is different than that. There is a God, there is a soul or a spirit within humanity. There is a truth that comes from God that, that He can give us truth, and there's morality set by our Creator. And moreover, than just there being a God, that God is our Creator, and because we're created beings, that renders to each person value, purpose, and accountability to every human being. And, that, and so we just see, when we look at the world, which one of those two divergent kind of worldviews you look at really changes how you approach life. And, and, and really encouraged us more than anything is to realize that there's people who view the world differently and that's what results in their behavior because of this paradigm that they start with. And, I, and, and instead of getting upset with them for their behavior, which it is upsetting, realize where it comes from and, and try to address the root issue of you know, well, what do you see as real life? This week, we're going to take some more time to look down these two different roads a little bit further. We're going to watch <coughs> and see how the narrow way narrows even more as we look a little bit further down those roads. Because as I said last week, those who have the spiritual worldview, to be completely fair, would encompass uh, all religions, all faiths, and all spiritual practices. That you can say, I have a spiritual worldview and there can be, <coughs> excuse me, quite a, a difference in how you live that out in your spiritual life. <clears throat> because all faiths, all spiritual practice, all religions are based on the view that there is something supernatural, that there is something more than the world we observe. Today, though, we're going to see these roads narrow as we start to talk about the divergent identities of Jesus. As, as when you look down this road, and especially on that spiritual side, and you see religions and faith practices and, 
and, and so forth start to splinter off and, and kind of come to divisions there, that it's all on the identity of who Jesus is. Now, there's a sermon that I preached, and some of the sermons stick in my mind, and this is one that does, is that, to be quite honest with you, there's five options on who Jesus is. He's either a liar who knew he wasn't God, but claimed to be and, and made up all kinds of stories before his own gain, which probably didn't work out real well for him since he hung on a cross. He was a lunatic who believed all those things about himself. And then one day hanging on the cross, he came to the realization that he wasn't what he thought he was. And maybe he had some kind of moment of, of clarity, a thought. He's a legend, a guy who really existed, but, but all the things he did and all the things he accomplished have been embellished over the last couple of thousand years, you know, kind of like the King Arthur idea. There probably was a King Arthur, but, you know, Knights of the Round Table and all that kind of chivalry stuff was just kind of legend that was added on to a real figure. If you're generous, you might call him lesser. Uh, this is the view of many people that he was a good teacher, that he was a prophet, that he was a uh, you know, a good guy that uh, he may have done some even miraculous things. We might even call him a saint, you know, but still lesser than God, no matter how good he was. Or the last option is that he is the Lord, that he is the Lord God, the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, 100% divine, 100% human. Um, I mean, and when we look at Jesus, these are kind of the, the things that, these are our options if we're really honest about it. And people fall out on these all over the place. Well, we're going to kind of do a similar thing today, but we're going to look at another passage. This is from Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a passage that really builds on the identity of who Jesus is. And we're, and we're looking from this passage at some different identities that it reveals about who Jesus is. It's really the, the why we care about Jesus passage. You know, why do, we, why do we put our hope in Jesus? Why do we send up, you know, my hope is in Christ. Well, why is there hope in Christ? Why is there anything in Christ? Why do we care what Christ taught? Why do we care what Jesus taught? Why do we care what he did? Why do we follow his examples? Why do we claim to be his disciples? It's all wrapped up kind of in this passage in the, in the identities that we see. Now, I want to talk a moment about the context. 
If you look in this context in Philippians, even back even a little bit further in, in the last part of chapter 1 and this first part of chapter 2, it's talking about Christian unity. He's wanting everybody to be of the same mind. He's wanting them to, to put each other first. And he's, he's really building, and Paul's really calling for the Philippians who've been enduring some hardships, by the way. I don't know if you ever noticed, like when, when people start dealing hardships, you know, and life gets tough, they get kind of short-tempered. You ever noticed that about people, right? You probably haven't experienced that in the last year, have you? You know? And when people get short-tempered, they, they kind of turn on those that they care the most about. And, and it seems, and Paul's writing to the Philippians who've been enduring hardship, who've been enduring persecution. He's like, stay together, stay together. Don't, don't give up. You be of one mind. Keep serving one another. Keep hanging in there with one another. Don't let these hard times get you to the place where you start to give up. And the real context is that the identity of who Jesus is is the source for Christian unity. The thing that connects us and should surpass all else is who we say Jesus is. And if we all say Jesus is this person, as we're going to identify in this passage, then that should trump every other difference we have. It should, it should, it should overpass anything that would divide us. Any opinion, any politics, any background, any experience, anything that we would be divided by should be unified in, well, I say Jesus is God. That should trump everything. Actually, if you look at the last few verses, 10 and 11 of this passage, you're going to realize that Jesus' identity is the one unifying thing of all people of all times. It says, "What so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God." There's coming a day when this divided world we live in will be 100% unified. And it's going to be when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The only difference is there's some people who are going to bend their knee willingly and there are some of those who will be driven to their knees because they're going to see the wrath of God. They're going to see the glory of the Christ. They're going to see Jesus and all that he really is. And for one maybe small moment, everyone world round will be unified in one statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is the overall arching reason why we care about who Jesus is. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to take this passage, we're going to walk through this passage, but we're also going to compare it with some, some statements that Jesus himself makes from the Gospel of John. So if you want to try to track me down, or if you just want to write where these verses are in John, I'll, I'll reference them and you can come back and view them later. Because in the Gospel of John... Jesus makes these statements that leave no ambiguity about his identity. He, he, he doesn't kind of leave it up for you to figure out. He, he makes statements in the Gospel of John that I think much of what Paul's writing about here in Philippians are based on. And, and it's like, he either is or he isn't. Jesus leaves no middle room 
about his identity. He leaves no gray area in who he is. And how you answer the who he is question is a giant step down the more narrow road. So first, first identity that's revealed to us here is that Jesus is God. If you look there in your, in your passage in, in Philippians, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Paul's writing said, you know, we recognize that Jesus had the same substance, the same form. The, he was God. Right? He recognized that, even though he himself didn't consider that something to be grasped, when he emptied himself, when he became, when he was incarnated, when he came to live on earth. But it's a recognition of the incarnation. It's a recognition that Jesus existed as God. In John's Gospel, the eighth chapter, if you want to turn there or write this down, verses 54 through 59, Jesus has an encounter with a group of people. At the end of that encounter, it says this. So they, this is verse 59, John 8. They picked up stones to throw at him. Now they picked up stones to stone Jesus. Jesus really ticked some people off in this little encounter. And what is it that Jesus said that made people so mad that they picked up stones and they were planning on stoning him? Well, this is verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, he's having this encounter talking about Abraham and the Jews and, and how and he goes on, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Uh, we saw, he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are, you're not even 50 years old, and how have you seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. There's no middle room in this statement. Jesus is saying, I am. And if you know anything about Bible history, about, about Old Testament, the I am is the name that God revealed himself to Moses. He says, I am that I am. This is God's way of referring to himself. And Jesus says, yeah, I know Abraham. I'm older than Abraham. Before Abraham, Abraham was happy to see me. Before Abraham even was, I am. The people understood it. That's why they got upset. They, they're thinking he's blaspheming and they're going to pick up stones and throw him. This is, there's no way around it. Jesus claims to be the I am. And so why would we think there's hope in Jesus? Why would we consider what he teaches? Why would we follow him? Because first we identify him as God. The second identity that's laid out is he's the good shepherd. Now, I wanted to at least try to keep us a little connected to our Shepherd and Wolves series that we're going to pick back up on the other side of Easter. In verse 8 it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. All right. 
This is referring to someone who's laying their life down for somebody else. That Jesus, God, was incarnated and became obedient even to death on the cross. Well, John 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life down for the sheep. In Philippians, it's recognizing that Jesus came to die on the cross, to give up his life willingly for his sheep. In John's gospel, Jesus puts that same event in this phrase, I am the good shepherd. Now, it's interesting, he uses that same little phrase, I am the good shepherd. Now, I believe what he's referring to, as you probably know, we talked about this, this is a reference to Psalm 23, one of our favorite Psalms. How many of you, we'll have a quick show of hands, how many of you can do most of Psalm 23 from memory? Yeah, oh, well over half of us, right? It's one of those favorite Psalms. Now, can you imagine me walking into the room and going, Psalm 23, that favorite Psalm of yours, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's talking about me. That's who I am. You see, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and he's like, Psalm 23, that psalm y'all love so much, that's talking about me. There's not a lot of ambiguity in that statement. Either he is the good shepherd, or he's crazy. To, to, To claim, to make the assertion, to make a claim that the Bible is talking about himself is a huge statement. These people have got to say, Oh, you're the Lord who's going to lead me by the side of the still waters, who's going to restore my soul, who's going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? That's what you're going to, that's who you are. Your rod and your staff, they're going to comfort me. You're going to be with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus is going, yep, that's me. That's me. That's, That's who I am. That's who I am. That's my identity. I'm the good shepherd who's going to lay his life down for his sheep. That's a bold statement. And that's the identity that Jesus claims to be himself. Another identity that's mentioned within this passage, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. That word Christ, when we see it there in the Philippians context, it's a title. I think we kind of sometimes get the mistaken identity that Christ is Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ, right? And the Christ, as you know, is an identity. It's, it's, it's really a title for Messiah, the promised one. There was this person promised throughout the Old Testament, uh, uh, starting off as early as Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, I'll, there will be enmity between your seed and her seed, and he, you will bite him on the hill, and he will crush your head. Uh, and later on in the book of Genesis, I just kind of picked this up this week, that, that there's three major messianic prophecies in the book of Genesis a little later on. So that's to Adam and Eve. A little later on to Abraham, uh, God makes this promise that, uh, that through you all the nations will be blessed. And then a little later on at the end to Joseph, he talks about, you know, that from your throne, from the, when, uh, 
Isaac is blessing all his children. At the end, he's, he looks at Judah and says to Judah, you're the line of Judah, and from your throne, from your descendants, there will be one who sits on the throne forever and ever and ever. So a promise of one to defeat Satan, a promise for one to bless the whole world, and a promise for one to be the king of Israel for eternity. And those are just three promises made in the book of Genesis. And there's many more about this one who's going to come and fulfill all these prophecies. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. And that's who Jesus claims to be. We will celebrate or remember that day next week on Palm Sunday. In John's gospel, the 12th chapter of John, it starts with verses 12 through 19. It tells us that the next day a large crowd came from the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is who he comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming sitting on a donkey's coat. Jesus not only allows the people to put him on a donkey, he actually kind of initiates this event. If you remember, some of the other gospels tells us he told the disciples, go into the certain town and find this donkey with the coal. And when they, if they ask you what they want, tell them that the Lord needs it and bring it back. Jesus initiates the triumphal entry. He initiates Palm Sunday. He gets upon that coal, that colt, that foal of that donkey, and he rides into town, people laying out their cloaks, laying out palm branches that they would do to recognize a king. And they're singing, blessed, Hosanna, Hosanna to the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He allows this to happen. And even when the Pharisees try to say, you need to stop this from happening, he goes, look, if I, don't, if I stop them, if they don't speak, the very stones are going to cry out. Jesus is allowing that as a statement of he is the Messiah. If he didn't want people to think he was the Messiah, he would have slipped into town real quiet like. But him allowing and even initiating the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday is his statement. The Messiah has come. The king of Israel has come. That, that, that riding in on the donkey, um, that the king is coming, that's, that's prophesied in Zechariah 9, 9, is a messianic prophecy. And by him climbing on that, he would have known what he's doing. The people would have known what he's doing. That this is a public outcry, that there's no way around. Jesus is going, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the one who's been prophesied from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the Old Testament. I have arrived. And so we recognize Jesus as God. We recognize Jesus as the Good Shepherd. And we recognize Jesus as the Messiah. The next recognition is Jesus is Savior. It's not in the verses we read, in the Philippians passage, in chapter 1, verse 28, it says, and don't be frightened by your opponents. This is where he's encouraging them to, to, to endure the suffering that they're going under before he calls for their unity. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but for your salvation 
and that from God. He's talking about that the fact that the people are suffering, the fact that the people are being persecuted is evidence that, that uh, they will be saved from God. In chapter 2, verse 12, uh, just right after our passage where we stopped reading, it says, Beloved, uh, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That Jesus moves on to being the Savior. John 14, verses 6 and 7, it says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the Savior. He is the only way to God. That all other religions are trying to access God. And Jesus makes this very unambiguous, very concrete, very plain, and very exclusive statement. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Philippians verse will follow up at the end of Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There is no other way. Either Jesus is the only way or he's no way at all. Is he the Savior? Here's a statement that I, I, I want us to wrestle with today, though. Jesus is not your Savior, though, until you've been saved. It's one thing to call Jesus the Savior. It's a whole nother statement to say, he's my Savior. And you can't take him on as your Savior <laughs> If you haven't been saved, what that means is that because you've accepted Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, that he is the God, that he was the good shepherd, right? That he, that he is the Messiah, the promised one of God, that you put your faith into that statement, that you believe, I want to get to God. I want to have access to God. And the only way I'm getting there is by putting my faith in Jesus, that he is God himself, that he's the good shepherd who's going to lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, that he is the Messiah, the promised one from Christ. I put all my eggs in Jesus' basket so that I will have life eternal eternal in his presence that's being saved and unless you're just trusting in jesus he might be the savior he might be somebody else's savior but until you commit your lives to be and recognize who christ is and put your faith in that he's not your savior and this is the most important question that i can ever ask anyone is jesus your savior and not just the Savior. That is the most important question you'll ever ask. In Philippians chapter 3, in the next chapter over, Paul comes back to this idea in verse 19. He says, Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you sit in a place where you wait for
for your Savior to come? And do you identify him as, that's my Savior? The final identity that's recorded in this verse is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Kind of inter interestingly enough, we ended up right back where we started from. Right? Liar, lunatic, lesser, right? Uh, legend or Lord. Verse 11, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In John's gospel, the 13th chapter, starting the 12th verse, it says this, and when he had washed their feet and put on their outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? And Jesus just got finished washing the disciples' feet. Here's the statement. You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. For so I am. I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You see how identifying Jesus finally as Lord, that's why, that's why we care about what Jesus taught. That's why we care about what Jesus did. That's why we try to follow his examples. That's why it starts off, if there's any, back to Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy. Why is there encouragement in Christ? Why is there comfort in love? Why is there participation in the Spirit? Why is there affection? Why is there sympathy? Because Jesus is God Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is my Savior. That's why I have hope in Christ. Not because of what he did or how he lived, but because of who he is. And that's where we need to start. And the reason I call him Lord is because I believe of who he is. I believe he is God. And so when I say Jesus is my Lord, now that means he's my leader, he's my king, he's my master. I follow him, I listen to him, I obey him because first I've identified him as the second person of the Trinity. God incarnate, living on this planet, willing to die in my stead for me as the Messiah and my personal Savior. When you make those identifications, then you claim him, now he's my master. He's my Lord. And because of that, I obey. I follow. My obeying and my following mean nothing if I haven't identified him properly. So when it comes to the instructions of Jesus, why do I love others as myself? Why do I forgive those who mistreat me? Why do I keep no record of wrong as described in 1 Corinthians 13 when it talks about how to love other people? Why do I put others before myself as it's talked about in this context? 
Paul saying, put others before yourself. Why? Because you believe Jesus is God. Because you believe Jesus is the Messiah. Because you believe Jesus is the good shepherd who put you before himself. Because he is your Lord. Why do I consider the suffering of the cross and the gospel? Why do I consider it a privilege to take up my own cross and follow him? Because of who Jesus is. It is the most important question you will ever answer. Who is Jesus? How do you identify him? And you must answer that question long before we get caught up into figuring out, well, what is it he taught? And trying to be one of his followers without identifying who he actually is. I would say this. If you haven't identified him properly, don't get caught up on following him yet. Because if you don't identify him properly, the following, it's just good works. And that's good. But they won't save you. Identifying Jesus as God, the good shepherd, the Messiah, your personal savior, and the Lord you follow. That is where your faith has to be. Isaiah 43, 10 and 12. Long before Jesus and John made these unambiguous statements, identifying who he claimed to be, this is what God said through the prophet. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am He. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And I am God. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? Is anyone able to break the sea? 
Is he worth? 